the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I think a lot of us want to think that they're these monsters that kind of crawl out from under a rock or from, you know, the blackness of the night and fit this perception. And the scary thing is, is that they're not. They look normal, they act normal, you know, and for all intents and purposes, they blend in the surroundings. So really, what makes a killer? So I guess that makes any of us capable of that right but i don't know he just didn't have there wasn't anything odd about it I mean, nothing that was that came off strange i mean i would have a beer with the guy i didn't mind that and go to the bar watch a football game and have a beer i mean that's kind of the feeling that i had about the guy and so now i feel bamboozled a little bit or a lot about you know who this was that i spent all this time with Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. How are we feeling today? You look like like a little Steve Jobsy right now. Oh my gosh, thank you. It's a good look. I love it. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let everybody know that we're having a big sale in our merch store. So if you wanted to ever get some First Degree merch, there's a lot of good stuff in there, including a sweatshirt. Uh, that says the cosmic shuffling of the deck, which is Ooh. Alexis's little tagline. People that love she's that. brought through the first degree. So go get your shop on. I think that's a great idea. And also for our Patreon subscribers, I mean, number one, if you're not on Patreon, you should be because we have a brand new episode every week there. But there's also a very special shirt that you can only get if you're in the first year underground, aka our Patreon. Love that. And as a reminder, we've been on Patreon for a while now. We've got more than 50 episodes on there. So if you're looking for another stash of content, you know where to go. There's lots of good stuff on there. And this week's episode that we did on Patreon is fucking bonanas. So is last week's. Honestly, the last two have blown me away. Blown me away. They're insane. So if you need new crazy content, and also I do want to say with the Patreon, it's kind of cool because it's a little bit more conversational because obviously our first degree episodes are very, very scripted, but Patreon, we kind of have a lot of back and forth. So it's a little bit more like two friends. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Well, do you want to know what the day is today? Yes, please. Today is March 8th and it is... International Women's Day. Well, that sounds like an important one. It's also National Be Nasty Day. And I didn't see Women's Day before this. And now I think that that has to do with Trump calling Hillary Clinton a nasty woman. A nasty woman? Probably. (laughs) It's also National Peanut Cluster Day. Looks delicious. Peanut cluster. Yeah. I mean, whatever they have for the peanut cluster looks so good. And then it's also... No smoking day. So a lot of good days there for you to really resonate with, you know? I definitely support no smoking. Absolutely. Me too. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Muhammad Ali called himself the greatest from a young age. But for a long time, no one else thought Ali was that great. In fact, critics said he held his hands wrong. And they said he dodged his punches wrong. And that he just couldn't land a knockout the way he needed to. But he persevered anyways. He worked hard. He made progress. And his path, however unconventional, led him to incredible success. Legendary success. So successful that he won the World Heavyweight Championship three times, and he defended his title 19 times, and he's become the most well-known boxer of all time. And today's case could have been about a modern-day Muhammad Ali, a young woman who took an unconventional path towards her dreams, who ignored all the critics and followed her gut. But just as she was gaining momentum, her life was disrupted, her life ended, and because of it, we'll never know her true potential. 
Today's case begins on April 10th of 2001. Top songs on the radio was Janet Jackson's All For You and Destiny's Child Survivor. I mean, what a good time for music. In movies, Spy Kids is an instant hit, grossing over $56 million within just two weeks. And around this time, the world sees its first space tourist. The Russian Federal Space Agency takes American entrepreneur Dennis Tito from Kazakhstan to the International Space Station. The eight-day trip cost Tito $20 million. And on TV, the show Survivor is airing its second season ever. And today, Survivor has 43 seasons with no signs of stopping. And the setting for today's case is Miramar, Florida. And it's a large suburb located in southern Florida's Broward County. And Miramar was founded in 1953 as a low-cost housing development to help support the fast-growing Miami metropolitan area. And the first mayor named the city after a neighborhood in Havana, Cuba. In Spanish, Miramar means look at the sea, which is ironic because you can't look at the sea from Miramar. In fact, it's a 45-minute drive to any beachfront. And as of 2023, Miramar's population is about 135,000, and it's often referred to as a bedroom community, meaning people only sleep in Miramar. They don't work or hang out there. And every day, thousands of people commute from Miramar to Miami or to Fort Lauderdale, both of which are less than a 40-minute drive away. And our first degree for today's case is named Scott. Scott worked in the medical field for a long time as a physician's assistant, and he specializes in cardiothoracic surgery. So this is your heart, your lungs, and your esophagus, you know, all of the organs in your chest region. Scott can help fix them, and he's really good at it, which makes sense since Scott received his physician's assistant's credentials from Atlanta's Emory University. It's one of the nation's top PA programs. I wanted to be in medicine, but I didn't want to go to med school. And at the time that I was even thinking or contemplating going to PA school, I was in my early 30s. And the idea of, you know, four years of med school residency just didn't appeal to me. Physician assistants are this kind of midpoint of where I can do a lot of the things that a physician would be doing, but without the schooling or the length of schooling, but with the same capability of reward. When you get a degree, you want to make sure that you get a return on that investment. And our physician assistant is a really good starting place. Emory has the third best PA program in the country. It's a pretty distinguished program. Been around since 1968. So, I mean, it's an established program. It's a prestigious program. So I think when we looked left and right at our first day of orientation, we knew that all of these people that were there with us had gone through the same rigor and were, you know, academically and professionally rigorous individuals that, you know, we're going to make good clinicians. So there was no question as to, you know, the character or the quality of the people that were in there with us. Scott completed Emory's Physician's Assistant Program with 49 other grad students, and they all became really close, like Gray's Anatomy close, immersively close. So for two whole years, they all sat in class together, they crammed for tests together, and hit bars together, and they opened cadavers together. They practiced medicine together. So naturally, Scott and his classmates bonded over this shared experience. PA school, you can't work. And so as a graduate program, it's a little different than a lot of others. So it felt like med school. At the same time, it felt like an undergraduate program, but where everyone was on the same track. We all took the same classes. We all went through the same um, scenarios at the same time. So the first 13 months were the didactic in classroom. We did um, all the things that you would do in medical school. We did anatomy and physiology, you know, where we worked on cadavers and in many ways, it was cliquish, you know, you gravitate towards people that are more like you. But at the same time, when we were in class, we all kind of hung out and worked together because they made a concerted effort so that it wasn't just these little isolated groups of people that, you know, always came together. We worked with each other. So it was a close knit. So we sat in class from eight o'clock in the morning until four or five o'clock in the afternoon when we got done. So we knew each other. We felt comfortable around each other. We went out. I mean, it was really just was a fun experience, even though it was hard. And even though Scott and his friends graduated from Emory over a decade ago, they've stayed in touch. To this day, Scott and his PA buddies will get together from time to time. So when Scott saw their group chat notifications go off, he wasn't really shocked. Not at first, anyways. But as Scott scrolled through the messages, he realized that this wasn't your regular group chat conversation. There was something that was different, something dangerous. 
Someone had sent out a video of the local TV affiliate that had run the program, and it spread pretty quick amongst all of us. You know, everyone was just like, really? Wow. I can't speak for my fellow classmates, but I think that most of them would probably agree that none of them would have expected that this was something that Berkeley would be capable of. One of Scott's former Emory classmates, Berkeley, was in trouble. Big trouble. And Scott had so many questions. What exactly happened? Was someone hurt? Was someone dead? And who was the victim? Who was the perpetrator? So to answer these questions, you all know the drill. We got to go back. Berkeley Calvin Curtis Jr. was born on January 27th of 1975 in North Miami. And Berkeley was a pretty quiet guy. He was really known for keeping to himself. And in the early 90s, Berkeley attended Miami Norland Senior High School. While he was there, he established himself as an athletic and smart guy. He played soccer, competed on academic trivia teams, and won several scholarships. And while he was in high school, Berkeley met a beautiful young woman named Rebecca Pina. Berkeley and Rebecca began dating around 1992 when they were both around 18 years old. And at first, Rebecca and Berkeley seemed like a great fit. They had a lot in common. And Rebecca was born on February 7th of 1975, which made her the same age as Berkeley. And just like Berkeley, she grew up in a modest home in North Miami. And also like Berkeley, Rebecca attended Miami Norland Senior High School at the same time that he did. But Berkeley and Rebecca had some differences too. Where Berkeley was quiet, Rebecca was outgoing. People described her as outspoken, well-liked, and ambitious. And it's likely Rebecca was such a great people person because she was always around people. Her family was huge. There was Rebecca's dad, Raphael, who worked in construction, and then her mom, Juana, who was a homemaker. And then there were Rebecca's five siblings. So if you're counting, that is eight people in one house. I don't know how many bathrooms were in that house, but, you know, it wasn't enough because it's never enough. Right. And even though the Pena family was big, they were inseparable. Teachers remembered them as a lovely and tight-knit group of relatives. And Rebecca's family believed in the value of education. When Rebecca wanted to go to college to become a teacher, her family was thrilled. So in the fall of 1994, Rebecca moved to Washington, D.C. to attend Howard University. And in true high school sweetheart fashion, Berkeley went with her. He enrolled in Howard University to study biology and philosophy. But then life happened and things didn't go quite as planned for Rebecca and Berkeley. Rebecca gave birth to their first and only daughter on December 9th of 1997. And about a year later, Rebecca and Berkeley broke up. They were both 22 years old at this time. So that May, Rebecca returned to Miami with her one-year-old daughter. And she moved in with her parents who were happy to help raise their new granddaughter. Meanwhile, Berkeley stayed near D.C. to finish up his degree at Howard University. But Rebecca wasn't worried because she loved being a mother. She was a natural caregiver. She was dependable. She was loving. And she would do anything for her daughter. So when Rebecca first came back to Florida, she talked about enrolling in a local university. But it never really seemed like the right time for her to jump back into school. Instead, Rebecca began to chase her lifelong dream, and that was becoming a famous actress. And keep in mind, Rebecca's love for acting wasn't new. She's always kind of been a performer. As a child, Rebecca would stand in front of the mirror and sing the Spanish songs her father had taught her. And now as an adult, Rebecca was excited to pursue her new acting career. She worked a day job as an administrative assistant for a pharmaceutical company, but in her spare time, Rebecca auditioned whenever she could. She nabbed a few roles in some short films, but of course, getting recognized as an actress is really, really difficult. By 2001, Rebecca was really frustrated. It had been two years of inconsistent work, and she was ready for more. But Rebecca wasn't the type to give up. She'd been hitting the gym, she'd been getting in the best shape of her life, and she had plans to move to New York with her brother and her daughter so she could find even better opportunities as an actress. Rebecca was working really hard to juggle all of her responsibilities. Between her day job, her daughter, and her acting, her schedule was full. But her hard work finally paid off in April of 2001 when a casting director contacted her. Rebecca was overjoyed, and she called her mom, her sisters, her brothers, everyone. Rebecca told them that this could be her big break. Rebecca had been cast in a 2001 Muhammad Ali biopic. She was over the moon. Right, and this was a really, really big deal. The movie had a budget of over $100 million. Like, this is a real movie 
movie, not an independent short film that would kind of do little festivals, but this would get noticed by bigger audiences. It was a Columbia Pictures production starring Will Smith at the height of his career. Rebecca had a small role, but you know what? She didn't really care. She saw an opportunity to realize her own greatness, and she was going to take it. Rebecca was the happiest she'd been in years, and her family remembered that Rebecca was so energetic and optimistic about life. And as far as her personal life was concerned, she was moving on from her ex, Berkeley. And Rebecca was even seeing a new guy. Things were really looking up for her, and it felt like nothing could possibly go wrong. On Monday, April 9th of 2001, 26-year-old Rebecca Pina went to the Ali movie set, which was located in a Miami neighborhood known as Liberty City. And when the film production went late into the night, Rebecca called her parents. They were babysitting her now three-year-old daughter that night, and she let them know that she needed to stick around set to get some extra shots. But when Rebecca's parents didn't hear from her as the hours ticked into the early morning, they became worried. And their fears increased when Rebecca didn't show up for her 9-to-5 job the next day. Her sister told the Miami Herald, it's not like Rebecca to not call or leave word about where she would be. Desperate for answers, multiple people knocked on Rebecca's Miramar apartment door, but no one answered. At this point, everyone was concerned. Where was Rebecca? And the answer is, honestly, super, super tragic. Two days later, on Thursday, April 12th of 2001, Rebecca was still nowhere to be found. Her brother reported her missing, and the Miramar police entered her apartment. But Rebecca wasn't there. The authorities looked around her place for clues as to what could have happened, but there was nothing. Everything was in its place, and there was no signs of a struggle. And Rebecca's 1998 white Honda Civic was parked in her apartment's parking lot. Even that was untouched. Local newspaper, the Miami Herald, released a description of Rebecca to the public and requested that people call the Miami Police Department with any information. They described Rebecca as 5'5", 120 pounds, with brown hair and brown eyes. Missing persons flyers were posted around the area. And the police investigation revealed that Rebecca was last seen leaving the Ollie movie set, heading north towards her apartment at 2.15 a.m. on Tuesday, April 10th. As she walked off the set, Rebecca had given another woman directions for how to get on the I-95 highway. Police believe that this woman was the last person to see Rebecca, but then Rebecca's trail went cold. By this time, 26-year-old Berkeley had finished his undergrad degree and he moved back to Miami. And right away, the police were really suspicious that he was involved in Rebecca's disappearance. Berkeley was Rebecca's ex-boyfriend and the father of her child. And for a likable person like Rebecca, who didn't have any known enemies, Berkeley seemed like the most obvious suspect. Plus, there wasn't really anything else to go on. There were no eyewitnesses. There was no evidence. There was literally nothing. Even Rebecca's family wasn't sure if they could really trust Berkeley. And when Berkeley came to pick up his daughter from Rebecca's parents' house two days after Rebecca vanished, the situation was tense. But Rebecca's family hadn't officially accused Berkeley of anything. Rebecca's mom told the South Florida Sun Sentinel, I don't think he wanted to do Rebecca harm because he supposedly loved her. On the evening of April 16th, six days after Rebecca went missing, three boaters were out fishing in Miami's Biscayne River Canal near Northwest 153rd Street. And that's where they spotted something odd. A large black fabric suitcase with wheels floating in the water. And one of the men told reporters it looked like blood was coming out of it. It also smelled awful. So they called the police right away. And the first officer on the scene partially unzipped the suitcase to peek inside. And he promptly zipped it back up. It confirmed what everyone had already suspected. Inside the suitcase was a body. Although it took several days for fingerprints and dental records to confirm it, the authorities already knew that it was Rebecca Pina's body. So Rebecca had this small rose tattoo on her back and the body in the suitcase did as well. Authorities also found two 25-pound weight plates in the suitcase and these were made and branded with a company named Wider. Rebecca's killer probably used them to try and keep her body submerged and hidden. Also in the suitcase, detectives found a magazine. It was sent to the Pena family at a Maryland address. The same Maryland address where Rebecca and her daughter used to live with Berkeley. 
Rebecca's body was severely damaged from the canal water, so the autopsy couldn't determine the cause of death. But medical experts believe that Rebecca died shortly after her disappearance. And the suitcase itself was actually from Rebecca's apartment. Rebecca had borrowed it from her parents to help pack for her upcoming move to New York. So based on this information, the police believed it was likely that Rebecca left the Ollie movie set, drove home, and went inside her apartment. At that point, someone killed Rebecca, stuffed her in the suitcase she borrowed from her parents, and tossed the suitcase in the canal. But Miami investigators weren't sure of much else beyond that. Or at least the investigators weren't telling the public or Rebecca's family anything. Local newspapers speculated that maybe the police were holding on to some information so they could better investigate Rebecca's murder. Meanwhile, Berkeley, Rebecca's ex, could kind of see the writing on the wall. His ex-girlfriend and the mother of his child had been murdered, and one of his old addresses was found on a magazine in the suitcase that hid her body. So, and perhaps the smartest decision that Berkeley could have possibly made, he immediately lawyered up. Right. And Berkeley's lawyer advised him to not speak with the police at all, under any circumstances. And if you didn't know, that's completely legal. You never, ever have to talk to the police not even if you're arrested. It's your constitutional right to remain silent. And that's what Berkeley did. He remained silent. He wasn't arrested or anything, so he had no reason to speak with them, and he couldn't be compelled to. And his lawyers told the authorities that Berkeley would be happy to answer any questions as long as they were provided in a written format. So this wasn't great, and this caused serious tension between the police and Berkeley. Ultimately, the Miami Police Department refused to provide Berkeley with any written questions. So essentially, The cops told the local reporters, we don't do that. And this seems kind of odd. You know, we can't question him the exact way we want to, so we won't ask him any questions at all. Seems like a kind of bad investigative strategy, but whatever. Still, everybody was looking at Berkeley in this kind of new light. Rebecca's father wondered to the Miami Herald reporters, why did Berkeley get a lawyer? Why is he so afraid? And it may be his constitutional right, but it's not a super compassionate look if you are Rebecca's family. Right. And even though detectives couldn't question Berkeley himself, they did track down his dad and they questioned him outside Berkeley's house. While there, the investigators noticed something strange. They noticed a set of weight plates sitting on Berkeley's front porch. And they were the exact same wider brand as the ones used to submerge the suitcase Rebecca had been found in. So... For them, that was enough, and they decided to get a search warrant, and they returned to Berkeley's home. But they didn't find anything else suspicious besides these wider weight plates. And while forensic testing did prove that these were the same kind of weights used in the suitcase, it's not actually really helpful information. You know, it's not illegal to own a specific brand of weights, and today you can buy wider workout equipment from pretty much anywhere, Walmart, Amazon, Target, etc. They're readily available and a lot of people own them. But it did make the case against Berkeley a little bit stronger. But still, investigators didn't have enough evidence to name Berkeley as a suspect, let alone arrest him. But then the police discovered something that meant Berkeley couldn't possibly have been the one to murder Rebecca. In May of 2001, detectives spoke with Berkeley's girlfriend at the time. So he had moved on. He was in a new relationship. And she said that Berkeley had been out the same night that Rebecca went missing, but he just went on a quick grocery store run. He came right back home. He was gone for 20 minutes tops. So according to this girlfriend, Berkeley had spent the rest of the night home with her. So it finally seems like at this point, Berkeley is in the clear, but he wasn't taking any chances. A few months after Rebecca's body was recovered, he decided that he was done with Florida altogether. He took his daughter and moved across the country to Maryland. For four years, Berkeley worked in medical facilities until 2006 when he moved to Atlanta. That's where Berkeley enrolled in the Emory University's physician assistant program, and that's how he met our first degree, Scott. We went to Emory University's physician assistant program. And so that's where we cross paths. If I'm not mistaken, he was married and had children at, at the time when he was going through the program. I didn't know that he had come from Florida. When you look back at that, he had already left out of the area after that had happened, at least gotten away from that situation. He was normal. I and mean, that's the easiest thing to say. It's like he wasn't overly gregarious. He cracked jokes. He seemed to have a good sense about him. There was nothing that would make you feel uncomfortable. And I mean, I've been around not necessarily, you know, serial killers or murders, but you've been around strange people that just make you feel uncomfortable. And that was at Berkeley. He didn't sit in the back of the classroom. He was right up in, I can remember now, like second row up on the left. He just didn't 
project this oddness. The only thing weird about him was that he had really bad breath, but I think it's because he smoked cigarettes all the time. That was the only thing that, that stood out for us. Scott had no idea about Berkeley's past or Rebecca or anything like that. And there's kind of no reason he would have known. The two men were friends, but they weren't crazy close friends. When you say that you have friends and you have acquaintances, he was the, the middle ground between a friend and an acquaintance. I worked with him when we were in class. We practiced on each other when we were doing exams and stuff like that. So, I mean, you, we knew each other and it wasn't a casual experience. We didn't hang out after work, but I mean, I felt comfortable with the guy and you know, there was nothing about him other than he was quiet. But that in and itself, I'm a quiet person. So, I mean, you know, if that's what makes a, a potential you know, murderer, then, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are suspect. I mean, in retrospect, it wasn't like he offered up anything to us, but, you know, we weren't in there digging either. So, I mean, I don't think that that was necessarily a topic of conversation. Even though Scott and Berkeley both graduated from Emory, in 2008, they kept tabs on each other's professional lives for a while. And by chance, the two men had gone into the exact same field of medicine. And Scott had even recommended Berkeley for a job that he was hired for. We worked in a surgical field. So specifically, we both worked in cardiothoracic surgery. So our, our roles as the PAs in that area worked. We operated on the leg to take the conduit that would be used, the piping, for the bypass operation for a coronary bypass surgery. We assisted the surgeon in closing these patients up. And so even when we graduated, he worked at a hospital that was in the same group. I actually recommended him for a position at another facility, you know, as a judge of character and professional experience. But Scott's reference for Berkeley would come back to haunt him. Because on Monday, December 14th of 2020, 19 years after Rebecca went missing, a now 46-year-old Berkeley Curtis Jr. was arrested for Rebecca's murder. I think the part that, you know, is challenging is that I gave this guy a, a personal you know, employment reference and said, he's, you know, he's a good guy. You should hire him on. So, you know, does that mean that I'm deficient in my ability to judge someone's merit and their capability and their humanity? No. I mean, he did a really good job of hiding all that, but I would be embarrassed. But Scott was beyond embarrassed. He was horrified and in disbelief too. When Scott's friend sent him the video about Berkeley's arrest, he couldn't believe it. Was Berkeley, Scott's fellow graduating classmate and friend, what a cold-blooded killer looked like? Had he been harboring the secret of killing Rebecca and stuffing her in a suitcase the whole time Scott had known him? As they practiced medicine to heal people, as they opened cadavers? That was the question. I think a lot of us want to think that there are these monsters that kind of crawl out from under a rock or from, you know, the blackness of the night and fit this perception. And the scary thing is, is that they're not. They look normal. They act normal, you know, and for all intents and purposes, they blend in the surroundings. So really what makes a killer? So I guess that makes any of us capable of that. Right. I mean, I would have a beer with the guy. I didn't mind that and go to the bar, watch a football game and have a beer. I mean, that's kind of the feeling that I had about the guy. You know, there was nothing about him that made me feel weird about him. And so now I feel bamboozled a little bit or a lot about, you know, who this was that I spent all this time with. It wasn't like Berkeley was misusing his power as a medical professional in the years following Rebecca's murder. You know, as far as we can tell, he was pretty okay at being a physician's assistant. It's not like he was Dr. Death or playing God or anything like that. He just appeared normal. But even like Ted Bundy, people that knew him felt that there was something that was off. But there was nothing like that. I don't think he was going there with that idea because that also would be something that's like, man, a lot of people, you know, dying under Berkeley's care. What's going on with him? You know, that kind of thing. In retrospect, did he find some fascination in that and that he could get that out in a safe way? And maybe that was a saving grace from keeping him from doing something to someone else. It'd be interesting to look at it from that aspect because, I mean, he was cutting on people and, you know, doing legitimate surgical intervention. Now I can look back, but back then, no, I don't think anybody would have said, oh, he's inappropriately messing with these cadavers and whatnot. So Scott wanted to know more about this whole Berkeley-Rebecca situation, so he began Googling. And Scott uncovered some information that kind of threw him for a loop. Before Rebecca disappeared, she had filed for a restraining order against Berkeley. As soon as you see the program, then you Google. You want to see what's going on and you want to read as much print. I mean, I did the best I could to find out from just the local media of what, you know, had gone on. 
And, you know, there's some worrisome parts as well, because he had had a restraining order from her. And as it turns out, Berkeley and Rebecca's relationship was not all sunshines and rainbows. It was actually really, really, really bad. So we're going to run you through Rebecca and Berkeley's relationship one more time, but this time you're going to hear a different version of events, Rebecca's version. And most of this is alleged, meaning we aren't sure exactly what happened because Rebecca is no longer with us. And we don't know Berkeley's side of the story, but we do know what her family has said. And as far as we can tell, Berkeley hasn't really told a side of his story ever. But for two decades, he's hardly ever spoken to the police or reporters for that matter. So according to Rebecca, Berkeley began physically and verbally abusing her shortly after they started dating, way back when they were both 18 years old. In October of 1993, they were in Berkeley's mom's car together, and Rebecca said something that Berkeley didn't like. So he punched her in the face and just kept driving. Rebecca had a black eye for weeks from this. In October of 1998, when Rebecca and Berkeley lived in Maryland, Rebecca said Berkeley pushed her, struck her in the face, and bit her in the hand. A month later, Rebecca said Berkeley went into a violent rage again. He choked her and dragged her out of their apartment. Then he continued to scream at her and wouldn't let her leave. When Rebecca could finally make it to the car, Berkeley got in the car with her and he refused to get out. And at some point during that particular incident, the police became involved. And on a different occasion, Rebecca claimed that Berkeley threatened her with a gun. And Rebecca's family also believed that Berkeley hurt Rebecca. They describe Rebecca and Berkeley's relationship as volatile. They said that he was abusive and controlling. And according to her family, Rebecca feared Berkeley immensely. She was worried that he was going to hurt her. When Rebecca and Berkeley broke up in February of 1999, it was a really hard situation, obviously, especially because they had a kid together. Berkeley would always be a part of Rebecca's life and vice versa. And according to Rebecca, every time that she saw Berkeley, he pestered her for information about her dating life because Berkeley wanted Rebecca to stop seeing other guys and he wanted to get back together with him instead. So according to Rebecca, Berkeley would go on great lengths to get her to tell him about her romantic partners. And the Miami Herald reported that Berkeley once told Rebecca people were blackmailing him using explicit photos and videos of her. So what do these alleged blackmailers want from Berkeley? So apparently, according to him, they wanted him to give them personal and inappropriate information about Rebecca. They also wanted $9,000. Berkeley even provided Rebecca with typed letters from these alleged blackmailers as proof. In the letters, they called Rebecca a bunch of vulgar names, and the whole thing was just odd. And at first, Rebecca believed Berkeley's blackmail story because this was too elaborate to be fake, right? And who, like, makes this stuff up to blackmail their exes. That's insane. Right. It's insane. But somehow Rebecca eventually realized that Berkeley was lying to her. By June of 1999, Rebecca was over all of Berkeley's bullshit. So she filed for a restraining order against him, citing all of these instances of abuse. The court granted Rebecca a temporary restraining order, which lasted for a month, like nothing. But the judge decided that there wasn't enough evidence to make it permanent, which is insane. But Okay. This may be because Berkeley had claimed that Rebecca's allegations of physical and verbal abuse were false or exaggerated, but again, insane. Right. And Berkeley still didn't back off. In 2000, Rebecca complained to the Miramar police that Berkeley was stalking her. At this point, Berkeley and Rebecca both lived in the Miami area. And Rebecca said that Berkeley would sit outside her apartment in his car and watch her. And neighbors confirmed Rebecca's claims, saying that Berkeley showed up all the time unannounced even when Rebecca had that temporary restraining order back in the summer of 99. So Rebecca filed a domestic violence lawsuit against Berkeley in February of 2000. But the case was closed the next month with nothing to show for it. So that same month, Berkeley sued Rebecca for parental rights. So he's wanting custody of their daughter. So at that point, he was only allowed supervised visits with their daughter. 
no weekend stays, no vacations, and no overnights. So Rebecca wanted Berkeley to get treatment for his bad temper before she'd allow their child to be with him for longer periods of time. Seems reasonable to me, but that made Berkeley really angry. So Rebecca suspected that Berkeley continuously harassed her, in part because he wanted full custody of their daughter. So now we're going to go back to April of 2001, and this is the month where Rebecca was murdered. According to Rebecca, Berkeley was still stalking her. Even Rebecca's father knew that Berkeley was threatening Rebecca. He told the Miami Herald, I kept telling him to find someone else because my daughter didn't want him anymore. Rebecca's neighbors were also concerned. They saw Rebecca and Berkeley fight in their Miramar apartment parking lot constantly. And on the same day that Rebecca went missing, Berkeley had, yet again, followed Rebecca to her apartment. But this time, Rebecca's boyfriend was with her. And just hours before Rebecca left to go work on the Ollie movie set, Rebecca and Berkeley had one of their well-known parking lot fights. And that same night, Rebecca would disappear. And within hours, she'd be dead. And uh, do you recall Berkeley's girlfriend from 2001? This was the one that swore up and down that Berkeley was only gone for 20 minutes the night of Rebecca's death. Well, in 2014, she changed her statement. The night that Rebecca went missing, Berkeley wasn't gone for just 20 minutes. He had been gone for hours. Right. And like we said, from the time Berkeley left for Florida to the time of his arrest, almost 20 years had passed. Until recently, Rebecca's case was cold, ice cold. And during that time, Rebecca's family was extremely frustrated. I'm sure you can all imagine. If Berkeley was Rebecca's killer, he'd gotten one hell of a deal. He moved across the country, he raised Rebecca's daughter, and started a new life, all while Rebecca's family was left to grieve and wonder. In May of 2004, Rebecca's father told the Herald, It can't be that perfect. From the time she left work, then got home, then was taken and put in a suitcase, then put in the canal. No one saw any of that. It's just not possible. The police were also upset with the lack of progress on Rebecca's case. One officer told the Miami reporters, It's very frustrating. Anytime you get a homicide case when you have a totally innocent victim, it's frustrating to think that the person who did this is just walking the streets. So by 2005, the police turned their attention elsewhere. And it wasn't until 2014 when Berkeley's then-girlfriend changed her statement that Rebecca's case got some traction. But it went cold again not long after. Right. So in December of 2020... Rebecca's family was elated to get this news of Berkeley's unexpected arrest. They'd waited so long. And according to CBS, Rebecca's father said, the pain will be less because justice has been served, but the emptiness is still there and won't go away. Every day we don't see her here. We cry a little, but we're satisfied with the life we gave her. I tell everyone, enjoy life with your children and forgive them because you don't know what may happen one day. So, it's clear the police had always been suspicious of Berkeley, especially with Rebecca's allegations of domestic violence. But it was difficult for the investigators to find a crack in Berkeley's armor since he refused to speak with them. So one time in 2002, when Berkeley was in Maryland, he almost spoke with police, but he called his lawyer before the questioning began and backed out at the last minute. And one thing about this case is that we have no idea why the Miami PD felt like that they could arrest Berkeley in December of 2020. You know, they did have his weight plates that matched the ones that were found in the suitcase with Rebecca's body. And they also have Berkeley's girlfriend's altered statement from 2014, which utterly destroyed his alibi. But the police had had all this information for years before his arrest in 2020. So what had changed? Right. So based on the research, it kind of seems like a new detective came on the case and looked at the totality of the evidence again with fresh eyes. We have other guesses, too. You know, the prosecuting attorneys attributed the arrest to modern forensic technology. She suggested that new GPS record developments helped investigators see where people moved around the day Rebecca went missing. And apparently there were new clues discovered about the suitcase itself, but they have not been shared with the public. And an investigator told the Miami Herald there was new information obtained from the old information. There was a foundation left for us that made it very easy for us. And our research also discovered that Berkeley wasn't just arrested for second-degree murder. Berkeley was also charged with a second count, grand theft of a firearm. But again, we aren't sure why. So did Berkeley kill Rebecca with a stolen gun is the question. Our first-degree Scott didn't know how to process all of this information. First and foremost, Scott couldn't believe that the Berkeley that he knew could actually kill someone. 
But also, Scott didn't understand how so many medical institutions looked past Berkeley's alleged history of abuse. Berkeley attended Emory University in Atlanta and John Hopkins University in Maryland. He worked at the Piedmont Heart Institute, the National Cancer Institute, and the Chesapeake Biological Labs. How did all of these esteemed institutions miss these glaring red flags? Had none of them done background checks? Because I got to say, a casual search in a newspaper archive makes it really obvious that he was a suspect in a murder case. Had anyone done basic search, they would have seen. I mean, he has a unique name. It's interesting. So like I said, they mentioned him by name dozens of times in relation to this case. They talked about the domestic violence in this reporting, too. They talked about this restraining order. You have to wonder how this was missed. Anytime a restraining order is generated, you would think that that would be a part of a permanent record. And, you know, it makes me somewhat nervous about the background check that was done by the university if he was able to get through this. Or did he get through that and he was able to explain his way past that? When you go to a master's program like this, they do background checks on you. Every time you go to a hospital to get privileges to work in that hospital, they do a criminal background check on you. They do a criminal background check not only with the state that I'm licensing in, but at the hospital that I'm in. So, I mean, it's it's nonstop process of people, organizations, entities looking at you. And I don't know how they weren't able to pick up some of this, you know, at some point and be like, wow, this is a little odd. I can't speak for the program, but I've worked on the committees to do interviews. You know, that should be a red flag. That's not a someone you want to put up and be the poster child of your, your university or your hospital or these other things. Oh, he's been accused of domestic violence because we know how things work. It doesn't matter if you proven innocent, as soon as that's labeled on you, you know, good luck trying to get rid of that. If you have a speeding ticket, that will give them pause, you know, especially if it was like a high speed, reckless driving type thing. You know, I mean, speeding, sometimes you, you know, you get caught doing 80 and a 50 or something like that. It happens, but that will give them pause. So you, you wonder, all right, a speeding ticket will give them pause, but a restraining order for stalking does not, you know, or domestic violence does not. It's just crazy. Scott also wonders why Berkeley ever returned to Florida. It seemed like he was tempting fate. He worked in Atlanta for a good probably four or five years. And then I think in the newspaper, it said he had actually moved back to Florida. So then the audacity of this guy to go back to the place where he was under investigation. I mean, did he start to lose his capacity to maintain control or was it this and now about conceit? And it's like going back there and saying, look at me, I've succeeded. You guys couldn't catch me in all this. It's it's amazing because if I was him and I had succeeded like that, the last place I would be would be Florida. I'd be on the other side of the country, you know, trying to, to stay as out of the public light as possible. But given that we have a presumption of innocence in this country, we have to ask, what if Berkeley didn't murder Rebecca? If that's the case, returning to Florida would make all the sense in the world. His daughter's mother's family was there. His family was there. And Scott grapples with this possibility and probably on some level still hopes for it. Part of that is also is like, what if he's not? I mean, what if he comes out of this and they find him not guilty? Is it just because it was a bad case or was he not guilty? He'll never live that down. You know, there will always be that presumption of guilt surrounding him, even if he, you know, ekes his way out of this case. It's a double-edged sword for sure. If Berkeley is convicted of killing Rebecca, Rebecca's family might finally find some peace. But it will be horrible to confirm that Berkeley did get away with murder for 20 years. And during that time, he raised the daughter of the woman that he murdered. The whole thing is so heartbreaking. But if Berkeley isn't the killer and this whole thing is just one huge failure of the justice system, that's obviously also horrible. Yes, but I have to just insert my personal opinion it doesn't look great for Berkeley, right? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> it doesn't look great. I mean, in again, presumption of innocence, but we do this all the time. You know, Brian Koberger is also not convicted yet. Right. But when the circumstantial and physical evidence lines up, it's easy to see perhaps if prosecution is done right, where this is going to go. It's if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck. I think that's the kind of situation we're in for this case. And this would also be, you know, for Miami police, an easy case to let be cold forever. You know, I think arresting him after 20 years suggests that they have pretty ironclad evidence against him. Absolutely. So according to multiple social media posts, Berkeley's family by at large does not believe 
he killed Rebecca. And that includes Rebecca's daughter, who is now in her mid-20s. So Rebecca's daughter is supporting her father in his innocence, in his claims of innocence, rather. So when Berkeley was arrested, his daughter started a GoFundMe account to help support their family while Berkeley was in jail. She wrote, my dad is an amazing man. He has helped countless people across communities through his work as a physician's assistant. He's a wonderful father. He sacrificed so much in his life so that I was able to follow my dreams. So I don't know, Jack, does it look better that the daughter supports Berkeley in your opinion? I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, no, you know, I I don't think that really means anything. Like he could have raised her correctly and been good to people while also have been a murderer. Like we've seen that with so many different cases, like with BTK or Golden State Killer, like people that have these families and got away with murder for so long. It's not like a black and white situation. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, one and done killers are a real thing. You can do it once and then go on, you know, compartmentalize that part of your life. And given that he's been the primary influence on the daughter her whole life, you know, she was three when her mother was murdered. I mean, he's been designing her thoughts since she was a baby. Yeah. It's not like she was like a teenager when this happened and she had knowledge of even like the history of abuse. Like I'm sure he's denied that to his daughter. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And also I think it's like she's already lost one parent for their for the protection of their their subconscious. They don't they can't let themselves believe this, even if on some level it could be true, you know? Yeah. It's just like survivalism. Totally. Okay. So as a medical professional, our first degree Scott is obviously kind of at a loss for Berkeley's alleged actions. You know, they were supposed to help people, do no harm, and it seems like Berkeley might have caused a lot of harm. Theoretically, I hurt people at work. You know, in a surgical situation, they're not all always asleep, you know, and you have to do things. And so you do have to compartmentalize this idea like, oh, I'm, I'm hurting them, but I'm really trying to help them. And so it hurts me that this guy is able to, you know, snuff out a life, which is what he did, and then masquerade as someone like myself, you know, and I'm not holding myself up as the, you know, the greatest clinician. But I mean, there are a lot of people out there that I think feel very similar to me and that it, it hurts the profession, it hurts healers, and it hurts humanity. And of course, there's how Berkeley might have killed Rebecca. So even if the initial murder was a crime of passion, the idea that you'd put the mother of your child in a suitcase to dispose of her body, you know, that requires a very high level of critical thinking. That goes way beyond a second degree crime of passion. It's a decisive choice to deceive Rebecca's family, deceive the daughter they had shared together, and to rob all who knew Rebecca of the truth about what happened to her for decades. Not to mention robbing Rebecca of her future and the dreams she was actively pursuing. And beyond that, it makes us wonder what else was going on in Berkeley's head. In hindsight, Scott isn't sure how Berkeley completed their rigorous PA program at Emory with a potential murder hovering in the back of his mind. There are still so many questions that are unanswered. He was already in another relationship with another girl. So it's not like he's unable to move on and, and find someone new. Why her? You know, if you did it in a, in a moment of passion, why not just admit to it? And when you put their body in a suitcase and, you know, weight it down and dump it, that intention, you know, for worse things is there. So, I mean, it's like, why? What drove you to this? And then how could you live with yourself every day? I mean, if the actual murder was an emotional outburst that came from all of this and he just did it, the fact that he went as far as to take the body, put it into a suitcase, anybody can be accused of being emotionally charged to the point where they do something silly, stupid, you know, like that. To take it to the next point where you put the body in there and throw it into a canal and just move on. That's the part that's that's worrisome and that, you know, may still exist there. And you wonder, you know, how is he able to put that down? Because to go back to the program, it's this is a difficult program. You know, I mean, you have to have a mental capacity facility to be able to make it through this 28 months and then pass the exams to practice and go through all of the stuff and really maintain a, a good competency mental competency. And he's either very good at internalizing and compartmentalizing, or this was, you know, something that just happened. And he's like, oh, I got away with it. I'm just going to get out of here. If he's able to do that, you know, and continue to live amongst society, what other kind of dangerous people are are also able to do that? And that makes it scary as well. (laughs) 
In January of 2021, Berkeley pled not guilty to killing Rebecca. This means that he will have a jury trial, but we're not sure when that's going to be. Very little information has been released about Berkeley's court proceedings. And since he was arrested in December of 2020, everything has probably been delayed due to the pandemic. For right now, Berkeley is released on bail in Southern Florida. And ultimately, our first degree Scott decided that he can't live his life with the fear that everyone around him is a killer. That would obviously be paralyzing, even if it might have been true at least once so far in his life. If we're constantly worried about, you know, every twitch or weird thing that someone says, then that somehow other makes them, you know, dangerous. Then how are we able to engage with people? Because every day you meet someone new. You don't want to bring this jaded idea that, oh, man, there must be something wrong with that person. I think it does give you pause, you know, to think that even the best of people have the capacity for something as awful as this. And so I think there's a spark in me that probably that I'll hide deep down that I'll maybe come out if someone does something odd. But I'm not going to let that affect how I engage with people, because I think we need to continue to believe that on a whole, humanity is okay and is good and it's these type of people are a very small minority of of the overall population scott's outlook is probably the best outlook we need to trust other people we need to do it to be okay and humanity can't survive if we don't every day we rely on others to help us navigate our own lives and we have to trust that people around us won't hurt us but realistically they could The delivery driver could set the packages on your front doorstep and then check to see if your front door is actually locked. The grocery store cashier could follow you out to the parking lot. Coworkers could turn around from their desks and attack you. And the father of your child could do the same. We hope that they don't. We hope that morality stops them. And if that fails, we hope that the justice system stops them. But there's no certainty that people won't hurt you, and there never will be. So if you or someone you know is a victim of domestic violence, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE or text START to 88788. For live chat and other resources, their website is thehotline.org. Well, huge thank you to Scott for being our first degree for this episode. If you are out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon if you want some bonus content and stick around tomorrow because there'll be a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monica for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Court Documents, Broward County Records, NBC Miami, The Daily Mail UK, CBS News, Oxygen, Miami State Attorney's Office, Cracked, Find a Grave, Ancestry, The Miami Herald, The South Florida Sun Sentinel, Rebecca's Missing Persons website, The Britannica Encyclopedia, The Daily Beast, The ACLU, and The Tampa Bay Times. And as always, our first three guest is always our largest source.